Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Welcome to this first lecture in the new AKC series on Voices in the Wilderness, Leadership in Troubled Times. This is perhaps the first time that the AKC series has focused on leadership directly. We live in troubled times. The global pandemic is bringing new fears and stresses into each of our lives on a very regular basis. There are new kinds of political upheaval with domestic terrorism shaking the US Capitol, with Brexit reshaping the relationship of Britain to the European Union, and with continued struggles for the recognition that Black Lives Matter across the globe. And this is not to mention many other economic and political struggles, climate change, and issues that affect us all. At the same time, our trust in politicians is now at a low ebb, and that's true in many parts of the world. What can we expect from our leaders? What makes these challenges new, if they really are new at all? What kind of thinking on leadership across different fields, such as politics, university leadership, health, and a range of other fields, can we draw upon to get to grips with challenges like these? These are just some of the questions that we'll be facing and considering through a range of lectures across this series. Now, this series is inspired by the lonely and itinerant figure of John the Baptist, who in Christian tradition sought to prepare the way for Christ and make straight paths for him. He was a very lonely figure, one who was said to have eaten locusts and wild honey. And although that's not the same way that I or other speakers in this uh, series have prepared, uh, the idea would be that we as speakers are trying to be voices in the wilderness of our present times, trying to speak into the challenges and uncertainties of the world and the situations that, uh, that we find ourselves in, going well beyond Christian tradition to philosophy, politics, and many other points of view. Now, this talk today comes very much in the wake of the news of last week, uh, for me, of the, uh, the Capitol attack and, uh, and the news of how a sitting president of the United States uh, incited uh, violence and, in fact, terrorism uh, right at the heart of uh, that nation's capital. And that has led to real soul-searching uh, among those um, in, in America, politicians and commentators and otherwise. Uh, and it's just, just something which also leads, uh, leads me to think about um, how could we have got here? How could a leader that is so incredibly unfit um, have led us to this real precipice where democracy is not only frayed, but really almost feels like it's at breaking point. And my motivation in this talk is to reflect on a wide range of different problems and possibilities that face our world today, but it does come uh, in the aftermath of this particular moment. 
And what I would do, will do in this talk today is to begin by saying something about the types of challenges and problems that we face uh, in just general terms. And then beyond that, I want to go on to a set of six perspectives or ways of looking at problems, uh, which are classical ways of considering leadership. Six perspectives that can give us a longer view, help us to take our time to pause and reflect, and as we put on those perspectives and think through them, maybe that can lead us to fresh eyes to uh, look at problems and have uh, new uh, ways of, of asking the right questions and hopefully coming to some of the right answers to those problems. So to begin uh, with uh, trying to lay out the types of problems that we have today, uh, these problems are, of course, far-reaching. These problems are complex. And these are problems which involve uh, uh, systems that are interconnected, perhaps in ways that we haven't seen before. Globalization and the kinds of markets and interconnectedness of migration over several decades have brought us into a world that is more interconnected uh, than it has been before. And we have problems that face us like climate change and like the coronavirus, which challenge us to think of the entire world in a, as a kind of holistic system. So we have to think through complexity. There's no way to reduce the problem down to one solution, but the many different parts have to work together to come to solutions in an environment like this. And these sorts of very large, interconnected, complex problems are linked to economies. There are ways in which economies are at stake with the ways that we consider uh, solving problems like climate change or the coronavirus crisis. And that means that there are real costs and real, uh, a real calculus that has to be done to consider how to approach problems of this kind. But perhaps the, the new and really challenging side of problems like this is that so much of them demand a kind of human solidarity or social solidarity, people joining together to try to face some kind of crisis or situation, and that those types of solidarity involve people coming to one mind or a similar point of view, which of course is something which people very seldom like to do. People like to subvert, people like to change their minds, people, uh, human beings just notoriously have agency, have their own freedoms and, and senses of freedom, and many different perspectives which will not necessarily align or may change over time. Uh, public opinion polling is notorious for, for changing uh, back and forth over time. And so, to solve problems like this, there are very often suggestions of the need to nudge, to do sort of subtle problem solving, to get people to, to change their behaviors just slightly through uh, through small ways of signaling that there's more space in a certain place or that people should do something along with others to conform. Uh, but the main thing that I think we need to recognize here is that, uh, that the problems that we face today involve trying to herd a large number of people uh, to do um, things in solidarity with each other, uh, and there are many ways to resist that, to reconsider that. And one very important development in politics relating to political solutions is the development of populism, something that I have written about in the past. And populism is a kind of politics which 
considers uh, the world in terms of something that is sacred um, and deep, deeply held by those who follow it. Uh, so, the, so populism is a type of politics which should be taken seriously. There are populist politicians across the world. Uh, Donald Trump is a great example. But there are others like Erdogan in Turkey, Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, many across Europe in Hungary and other places. And populist politicians are politicians who lead a movement that is based around the idea of the people. And this sense of the people puts itself in opposition to two kinds of enemies, to others who might be immigrants or uh, Muslims or some other sorts of um, external groups as seen by the people, and the other kind of enemy, uh, which is the elite or the establishment. So populism is a developing kinds of kind of politics, and I see it as one of the, the developments that have made problems in this uh, current reality more challenging to solve because populism tends to offer solutions that are simpler. Solutions such as build a wall or no more minarets or something of that kind make very good slogans and can build a movement and can be passed through social media and um, energize people, energize large crowds and have been doing so for the past five or 10 years of real heightened populism. But those types of solutions are a blunt instrument when trying to tackle something like immigration or environmental problems, obviously, or other sorts of issues within society. And so we have a world with more complex problems than we've had in recent years, yet we also have a tendency uh, for solutions to be offered that are quite simple and quite Manichaean in that they set up an opposition between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside, and that opposition is very stark indeed. And one aspect of this that is very important is the role of social media in populism. Social media uh, is an important part of the current movement uh, surrounding uh, Donald Trump, and uh, one excellent example is the QAnon uh, person uh, who has been posting for some time now a set of posts around uh, cons a conspiracy theory by which Donald Trump is a kind of savior uh, that's breaking up a gang of, of pedophiles and other politicians who are a part of the establishment uh, within the United States. Uh, this is the sort of narrative of the QAnon movement and it involves a complex system of symbols and uh, of sort of insider language where everything that happens in US politics can be interpreted through the narrative of QAnon. And in fact, uh, this mysterious person uh, who claims to have a high security clearance, uh, who goes by the name of Q, uh, continues to put out uh, messages uh, which uh, keep on spinning the narrative and giving people a sense of, of what is happening um, and how events that are, that are current are part of uh, Donald Trump's attempts to save the nation. Now this is uh, what may seem to be quite a niche movement. Uh, it does have maybe more followers or more who are interested in it than you would expect. But it is one example of the kinds of social media 
um, operation today, which have splintered people into many different divided sorts of groups. And so people discuss the internet sometimes as the splinter net uh, because of the ways in which it has further subdivided us from each other. And you may be aware of research which has looked at, uh, at echo chambers, the idea that we tend to follow those on social media who are similar to ourselves and tend to repeat and retweet um, ideas that match what we already go for. And so we may be unaware of views or, or the sort of propensity of views that are very different from our own that are outside of our echo chamber. Another of these sorts of aspects of social media, other than echo chambers, is filter bubbles. The ways in which the technology that we use actually filter us into separate uh, sorts of social worlds. So that uh, if we like one thing in Netflix, then we like something else in our queue. There's a sort of suggestion for what else we might want to watch in our Netflix queue. If we search for certain things on Google, there's a suggestion for what else we would search for. And our friends uh, who are suggested to us in social media also are suggested based on this kind of logic, as are, of course, the news stories that we read. It's based on this kind of logic as well. And so as we take these, these aspects together, we get a sense that problems are complex. Some of the political solutions offered or those that are found attractive by many people are relatively simple. And we find ourselves splintered into many different groups. In fact, uh, we're splintered in ways that can be a bit like carnival mirrors, where our small subset, our echo chamber, uh, can uh, be like a, a sort of room with different mirrors around it. And those mirrors may distort our view, they will certainly flatten what we can see, and they will certainly uh, hide us away from the wider reality. If we're in a, a fun house walking through carnival mirrors, we will be disoriented by those mirrors, and it may be thrilling and exciting, but it won't necessarily bring us closer to coming to the truth or a full understanding of where we are. And so these are the sorts of problems and issues that we face. Uh, going from this, I want to think about how we can uh, consider some different perspectives that could lead us to a place closer to a set of solutions. And I'm thinking of these perspectives as a set of leadership lenses. So each of them is something like putting on a pair of glasses, a kind of lens that we can look through that will let us interpret the world in a different way. So in a sense, what I will be, I will be doing with you now is going to an eyewear shop where we can go and put on six different uh, sets of lenses and look through each of them and consider uh, some kind of long-standing way of considering leadership and see how that gives us an awareness or frames our environment differently, gives us a new perspective. These will not be every kind. They won't be an exhaustive list of different sorts of lenses. Uh, they won't give us a full solution, but they may give us a different way of looking at things. And so I hope that you find some of these valuable ways of putting the issues and that maybe you can explore them more or perhaps some of the speakers 
further in the series will uh, use some of this similar language um, as, as they go along. So let's go into the eyewear shop. Let's uh, try each of these six different lenses, sets of lenses on and uh, see what we can see a little bit differently. Now, in spite of the image that I used, none of these are rose-colored glasses. They all give us something critical to think about. So the first set of lenses is the lenses of transcendence. And you can imagine before we understood leadership as leadership, there was a time of pre-leadership, a time of kings, a time when violence was to, the way to resolve any dispute, when resources were scarce, and where a sense of the gods was about feeding the gods, that any sacrifices or rituals that were done were done simply to get what was needed from the gods. Coming out of that period of human history, many scholars have referred to a period called the Axial Age. Now, Carl Jespers is the person who coined this and began using this framing, but many more recent sociologists such as Robert Bella, philosophers such as Charles Taylor, and others have really picked this up and written about this extensively. Now, the Axial Age was a period of time between the 8th and 3rd century BCE, when simultaneously and independently across the world, there were really new developments in thinking, where philosophers and other kinds of thinkers emerged uh, who saw, uh, saw things very differently than had been seen in the past. And examples of this would be the great philosophers, uh, prophets and thinkers in places such as India, where Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism emerged in this period. In China, when the Hundred Schools took place, when, when uh, Confucianism and Taoism and other philosophies emerged as well in Greece with Greek philosophers, in, in Israel with a set of different prophets such as Elijah um, and um, Isaiah, and in Persia. So there were a range of different places where people began to follow a set of prophets or thinkers who engaged in a kind of second-order thinking or thinking about thinking. So there was no longer just a, an acceptance of origin myths and stories about the universe, for example, but there was an attempt during this time to think about how does the universe actually work? Uh, what mechanics are behind it? How can we break this down and think about uh, what is happening in the universe uh, and think about our thinking and, and have commentaries on the ways that we understand things? This second order thinking was accompanied by new kinds of ethics, new ways of considering what is the good, and a sense of how to reach a higher path or a greater understanding of what human beings are about. Senses of purpose, senses of uh, the telos or the ultimate, uh, the ultimate um, uh, end that we're working towards uh, would emerge during this period. And many of the great thinkers uh, that are considered thinkers of leadership. Uh, Sun Tzu uh, goes in vogue for different periods of time on thinking about leadership, for example, uh, began to consider leadership and strategy and tactics during this period of time. But I suppose for us, uh, understanding that leadership is at its core about calling us to something higher, trying to help us understand something 
that is deeper and perhaps should be invested with some kind of purpose or possibly a transcendence, something that's, that's bigger than ourselves, maybe gives us fresh light on the kinds of questions that we should ask or what we should call our leaders towards. Now, a second of these sets of lenses is the lenses of democracy. Democracy is a much debated topic now. There are many people who write about democracy being in crisis, democracy being pushed to the edge of a cliff. Now, if we look back to democracy in its original form, uh, in Athenian democracy, where some of the ideas of it uh, came into inception, we can see that actually democracy was quite a bit different. And so modern democracy uh, developed well beyond Athenian democracy in many positive ways. There were ways that Athenian democracy uh, was restricted to a very narrow class of men who were those who were able to debate different topics and actually serve as leaders. Yet there were some ways in which that kind of democracy, the, the early seeds of what democracy meant, has some fresh ideas that we could look at again today. And some of those are ideas like uh, the way in which the assembly of citizens worked. And so in fact, in Athenian democracy, there was a set of citizens and every one of them who qualified for citizen status would also qualify for the, for the ability to, to serve in state offices and do the most important leadership, except for military leadership, in the state. Every single uh, role otherwise was available. Now, there were some mechanisms that were used in Athenian democracy that are quite fascinating and are being investigated again as people think about these topics uh, with our world with fresh eyes. One of those was uh, the astraka, the set of pottery shards which were used as ways of writing the names of those who you thought um, had too much power as leaders and you thought should be exiled from the citizenry and exiled from Athens. So a set of different shards and notes about these, uh, these um, difficult people uh, have been found around Athens. Uh, and people, and we've of course taken the word um, ostracism from Ostraka. And in fact, this same kind of practice is precisely what is being debated in the American Congress today. The idea that not only is there an impeachment proceeding uh, around Donald Trump and his leadership, but there's also uh, more of a flexibility around doing a vote of just a simple majority, not a two-thirds majority, but a simple majority that would uh, make him ineligible to uh, serve in office, public office again. And that kind of idea is quite similar to the sort of banishment uh, that might happen from the Ostraka. But then another very uh, creative and interesting aspect of Athenian democracy is the Kleroterion. Uh, actually something almost like a machine or, or some kind of uh, uh, a sort of major box in um, Athens where people would put their names and this would generate um, on a random basis, arbitrary basis, those who would serve in the different offices of state. This is a principle or way of thinking about democracy called sortition. And so uh, sorting the citizenry, just like jury selection, is something that people have discussed more and more as an aspect of democratic politics that perhaps should be investigated again. Now, this is something which people have, have proposed as an alternative to, to a referendum. 
thinking that uh, that the the bare majority of a referendum uh, doesn't allow for deliberation, doesn't allow for uh, the sorts of uh, democratic thinking that citizens engage with um, if they uh, put more time and investment into something. And so, in fact, a really interesting example of sortition has taken place in Ireland in recent years, since 2016, with an Ireland Citizens' Assembly, which has debated the major issues of the day. And this assembly is composed of 99 people who are chosen from the electoral roll and chosen randomly across Ireland, people who are unrelated to each other, who represent all different types and aspects of Irish society. So a truly diverse uh, set of people politically and in terms of age and ethnic and other aspects. And this assembly uh, has debated in great at great length um, in ways that are public for people to be able to watch and provided, uh, provided uh, commentary and decisions on major political issues. Some of the issues that politicians thought couldn't be decided upon, such as abortion and climate change action, for example. Uh, so a really interesting um, and actually very impactful uh, assembly which has shaped the ways in which Ireland has done its politics over the past several years and is still trying to work through a set of questions uh, as it goes along uh, today. So perhaps there are fresh ways we can think about democracy and our democratic mechanisms. The next set of lenses is the lens that we can put on of, of understanding expertise. Now, uh, not only does the Athenian democracy give us a set of thinkers on, on those topics, it also gave us Plato and uh, his ideas on expertise. And Plato in the Republic put forward this idea of a leadership academy, the idea that, in fact, leaders are only qualified as leaders if they are fully trained. His notion was that, uh, that there's a kind of craft analogy to understanding leadership, that sailors need to be trained and need to understand wind and waves and the complex environment in which they sail. So in the same way, leaders need to understand the public and change and complexity and the complex environment in which they lead. And so they need to be trained as well. Obviously, there are many different types of leadership training that take place. And there's, in fact, a growing body of thinking in leadership studies that people could refer to as trying to draw upon this, this set of ideas from Plato. But we've also come into a period of time when, when expertise is much less valued than it was in the past. And so some of these developments in populism that I spoke about earlier are developments which, are, uh, which undermine the abilities of experts because they're considered to be part of the establishment. They're considered to bring across the ideas of elites. Some writing that's been influential on this is, is a book, for example, called The Death of Expertise. And uh, a good example of this would be uh, early into the Trump years, this notion that there are, al are alternative facts, that there's a separate set of facts uh, which uh, apply differently if uh, people want to follow those instead. So in any case, uh, I think what's important to capture here is that expertise is valuable, extremely valuable in times of COVID, for example, and that's that's being uh, more fully recognized. And our political leaders don't necessarily need to be 
experts in that one issue or a particular issue of the day, but they need to know how to harness expertise, to follow it, to communicate it, to bring the right people on board. Perhaps our leaders should be people who have gone through the work world uh, to a greater extent and demonstrated that they can handle difficult situations uh, and um, actually have a kind of expertise before they go into politics, for example. But certainly we need to rethink and open up again our conversations on the um, importance of expertise if we're going to lead ourselves through such complex and challenging issues like COVID and others. And the next of these sets of lenses is real politic or a kind of realism. Obviously, you will associate this with Machiavelli, uh, the thinker who wrote The Prince, from observing the, the Borgia family and the kind of leadership that they exerted in Italy, the ways in which they worked with political expediency, whatever means led to the ends that they were seeking. Now, Machiavelli was not himself cynical, as some would assume. He was quite interested in just simply informing uh, those that he wrote for uh, about how politics actually really works. And in that way, he emancipated politics from theology and moral philosophy by descri describing simply what rulers actually did. Uh, so he was quite transparent, quite clear, and by taking on a kind of realism, we can put aside a, a naive perspective on politics. This uh, perspective is the, the sort of uh, perspective of realism within international relations. There's a school of thinking which tries to cut down um, all of the noise and understand how different players and actors in international relations have certain interests uh, that they would be striving for. But just in general, if we uh, put on the lenses of realism, we might be able to see things uh, more fully and clearly and uh, be able to come to a more matter-of-fact uh, way of looking at politics. The sort of next uh, of these different sets of lenses is the lens of charisma, uh, charismatic leadership, and this is associated closely with Max Weber, who coined this phrase within sociology and in politics. And Weber wrote a piece called Three Types of Legitimate Rule, where he explained that there was a kind of rule or, or authority that was traditional authority, where those who had been valued and had the right kind of esteem um, and uh, seniority within society, uh, that was one way in which they could demonstrate that they were worth listening to, traditional authority. Another kind of authority that developed with modern times was bureaucratic authority, uh, the kind of authority through knowledge and structures and through having the right position. But then a newer kind of authority at his time was the type of authority called charismatic authority. And this, he wrote, came in times of crisis. In times of crisis, charismatic leaders would emerge and would have a kind of supernatural power uh, not literally supernatural, but there was a way in which they acted that seemed to have a certain magic, uh, a certain power to it that others could see and that would mobilize and motivate large groups of people. And so charisma is something which is seen 
by followers. An important part of what Weber wrote was that charisma is not something innate to a person, but it's something that's perceived. And so some people will see someone as charismatic and others may not. Charisma is something which has been important to some of the major uh, movers and shakers of history. Martin Luther King is well known as a, as a charismatic speaker. Steve Jobs in recent years is someone who has been seen as very charismatic in the way that he worked within the business world. But obviously there have also been some, some very ugly uses of charisma in history as well. And a strong example is Jim Jones, the leader of the People's Temple, a movement of people which had around 3,000 to 5,000 members that was quite left-wing, that was quite interracial, that was quite uh, positive, many commentators said at the time. Uh, but he, as a charismatic leader at the center, held great power and sway within this group, brought this group of people, or many of them, to uh, Guyana, and eventually, after confrontations with authorities uh, who had come from the U.S., uh, he uh, motivated a, a large number of people, or compelled them, to a mass suicide, uh, drinking uh, Kool-Aid, uh, where uh, more than 900 people uh, died. Uh, and it was through this, this close uh, charismatic leadership that he had exerted with people that he was able to have that sort of power and sway over them. So charisma is something which can be, uh, that which shouldn't be underestimated. It's something that demagogues, uh, that, that the dangerous can wield. Yet it is something that is also very often quite positive and something which can be amoral. So whatever your thoughts on them may be, there was a, there was a sort of transfer from the years of Theresa May, who was seen generally as uncharismatic, to Boris Johnson, who's been seen as quite charismatic or having that as one of his main types of appeal. And the more that we open our eyes to charisma and the kind of power that it can have, positive, negative, or amoral, uh, the more that we can really uh, see that aspect of leaders and the more that we can actually put ourselves into the shoes of others who might be followers of the, those leaders and understand what it is that draws them to those people as leaders. Sixth and final set of leadership lenses that I'd like to share with you is empathy. Now, one of the things that I found most encouraging about leadership studies over the past few decades has been the emergence of more writing on empathy. Leadership studies is driven largely by, by publications like Harvard Business Review, HBR, and largely focuses on business and leaders in business, but has an influence on political leaders and others as well. And empathy has become a much larger topic within that. If I was going to try to distill empathy and come up with an example for this slide, I thought, I thought that I would use the example of anti-apartheid activism. And Nelson Mandela, of course, in particular, stands out as a real paragon of the idea of empathy. Now, Nelson Mandela stands for many different things, and it can be difficult to see him with the fresh eyes to recognize just what an, a magnificent uh, kind of um, achievement his leadership was. But if we, if we remind ourselves a bit of that story, if we remind ourselves that Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison, many of those isolated on Robben Island, and then quite remarkably, although he'd been imprisoned 
on the basis of being a terrorist or insurrectionist. Quite remarkably, uh, he forgave and uh, demonstrated a kind of openness uh, to those who had imprisoned him, uh, which really stood out on the global stage. And in fact, the ways in which he reacted and the public gestures and symbols by which he showed this forgiveness and empathy led to a kind of revolution of empathy, where rather than violence, the apartheid system of deeply embedded segregation and uh, racism over so many generations, that system uh, broke down uh, under international pressure and uh, led to a new kind of South Africa where he took the helm uh, as its first president. Nelson Mandela demonstrated empathy through a wide range of really prominent gestures. So his wearing of the Springboks uh, jersey uh, when they were in the uh, rugby championships and uh, demonstrating his his ways of uniting South Africa around the sport of rugby was, was one very well-known uh, example. Uh, he had his jailers as uh, some of the guests of honor at his presidential inauguration as well, and did many other symbolic acts which demonstrated a deep-seated kind of empathy. And the word that has been used for this empathy that he's used himself is the word Ubuntu. And the idea of Ubuntu is that it is a actually a 2,000-year-old, at least, uh, tradition or way of acting within African societies, that African societies uh, south of the Sahara share this kind of notion of Ubuntu coming out of humanity, out of our humanity. And although Nelson Mandela was the greatest exemplar of this in, in that period of history and in anti-apartheid activism, Desmond Tutu, uh, is uh, a great person in terms of actually putting into words uh, what Ubuntu means. And so he uh, wrote about Ubuntu theology and Ubuntu more widely. And for example, has written, uh, Ubuntu is not, I think, therefore I am, the sort of Descartes way of thinking. Um, it is not, I think, therefore I am. It says rather, I am a human because I belong. I participate, I share. In essence, I am because you are. And sometimes people have said, I am because we are. But in any case, this notion is that each of us exists only in social relationships. We can only come to understand ourselves because of the we that we are part of and because of others uh, that we can connect to. And this is an empathetic philosophy, a sort of philosophy of deep human empathy for others, where we can only fully understand ourselves when we understand those who are truly different from us and reach across any kind of divide in order to do that. So Ubuntu um, is a deep, a radical, a powerful way of thinking if we open ourselves up to what, what that would really mean. And beyond that, and also thinking more widely to leadership, uh, empathy has been used uh, in much leadership writing. Daniel Goleman is well known for introducing the idea of emotional intelligence through a book in 1998 into leadership studies. And others that you may be familiar with, such as Brene Brown, have also used ideas of empathy in the ways that they've talked about the emotions that we need in leadership. So Daniel Goleman is one of many who've written more about empathy as being something quite significant and important. So empathy is something which we need to recognize in leaders and is under-recognized as a kind of qualification for leadership, something which 
actually leads, makes leaders have a sort of different imprint on the world than those who are not empathetic or don't reach across those boundaries. And it's the kind of leadership that is sorely needed in a day and age where divides are quite deep and reaching across these divides is perhaps more necessary than it's been for a long time. One example that I think I, I think it's really important to share with you of this kind of reaching across boundaries with empathy is the example of Jacinda Ardern, the leader of New Zealand, who in 2019, in March of 2019, was confronted with a true crisis when there was a terror attack in Christchurch, New Zealand. And this terror attack was instigated by a white nationalist who went to two mosques in Christchurch and in each of those mosques uh, opened fire and shot and killed a number of people. In the first mosque, he shared this live um, on Facebook Live, and uh, this resulted in the deaths of 50 people at the time. It was an atrocity unlike any other that New Zealand has experienced in modern times, a completely unequaled moment of deep sadness for the nation. And there are many ways that the leader, that the politician, uh, could have acted in a situation like this. What Jacinda Ardern did is she acted decis decisively and empathetically throughout this entire crisis. And very early on shared some words that were important for shaping the way that New Zealand processed their grief as a nation. And so she said in an early speech, you may have chosen us, but we utterly reject and condemn you. In saying that, she was making the shooter, the you, and was saying that you may have chosen us and creating this strong sense of um, all New Zealanders, of all ethnicities, Muslims, those who are not Muslim, and others, all sharing in this common sense of a we, of being together. This is a strong, this is Ubuntu, essentially. This is a kind of empathy uh, which instantly broke down any us versus them dichotomy, made it so that everyone was on the same page as a nation in trying to confront this. And with another stroke of brilliance early on, she said, uh, he will, when I speak, remain nameless. She chose not to name the shooter in the attack. And by doing that, she was able to ensure that, uh, that there was no single target for people's anger, for people's rage, uh, that instead the shooter was very seldom discussed in New Zealand and there was much more of a focus on processing grief, coming together, making it through this episode as one nation. She also very visibly demonstrated empathy from the very beginning by visiting uh, Muslims um, at the mosques and other places, wearing a headscarf when doing so, and beginning speeches in those contexts with assalamu alaikum, with the Islamic greeting, as a way of reaching across lines and demonstrating that she fit uh, and that she understood and that she would dress and act in ways that showed her empathy. So Jacinda Ardern acted in a wide range of ways and also not only acted with a sense of solace, but also with a kind of steel. There was a real steeliness. Empathy is not simply about being soft or it's not about being soft at all. It's also about being credible and decisive uh, and having an emotional honesty. And so when an Australian senator said that Muslims were to blame for this attack, 
She instantly said that, is, that he is a disgrace, that senator. And she acted in other ways that uh, put forward new legislation around firearms and pushed that through very quickly um, in, in the days after this event. So there are a number of ways that she hit the right balance and acted empathetically uh, and acted in ways that uh, can't be taken for granted in our political leaders. In fact, the NAACP, the American Organization uh, uh, for the Advancement of Black uh, Americans, said, grace, dignity, courage, real leaders do exist as a way of describing and explaining uh, the kind of leadership that Jacinda Ardern displayed. In the COVID crisis now, uh, in her role in, in leadership of that crisis, uh, she's also drawn upon empathy in trying to bring New Zealand together as a nation with a sense that we are a team as a nation. And many have commended her for the, the ways in which people have come together with strong solidarity under decisive leadership to try to eliminate the virus and um, act quickly, but also act in ways that are sensitive to those in society. So this is all to say and to give an example, a living example of empathy, uh, but also to get us thinking about ways in which political leaders do or do not display that kind of trait and why it matters. So I hope that through discussing these six different sets of lenses, I've given you different ways of looking at leadership. And these are uh, short vignettes, short examples. I've told them in a kind of historical order, and I've tried to open them up so that you could investigate them further if you'd like. These are not exhaustive. There are many others that you might be able to think of, uh, but the six of them, I think, are a good set for getting us uh, considering uh, what is needed of our leaders and what they may be lacking and ways that we can constructively move forward to tackle the deeper problems of leadership in our world today. Some of these six are uh, held in tension with each other. So the idea of transcendence and the idea of real politic do pull at each other in different ways. We, we should call our leaders to more transcendent, more visionary ways of leading, to giving us a sense of purpose, to helping us look underneath, to, to think about something that's a higher road or something that is morally meaningful. But we should also be aware that Many leaders will act uh, with a kind of real politic, that there can be manipulation, and we should be open to uh, recognizing that in leaders, that they can use transcendent language sometimes in ways that uh, are, are deeply uh, flawed or, or attempts to generate more power for themselves. And holding those in tension and understanding how they work together or in opposition is important. It's also the case that when you look at these six, there are some that have been quite central to debates that we've held in, in recent years. And so the ideas of democracy and expertise as lenses for looking at things have been very important in British politics for the past several years. When we think about the Brexit debates, of course, that's been a case where expertise was questioned very deeply where Michael Gove said, I think people in this country have had enough of experts. And, uh, and in many ways, the ideas of experts were, uh, were brought down in estimation during the referendum debate itself. 
democracy, of course, was very important to the EU referendum, this notion of the, of the people or of a majority in terms of the vote. And so those um, ideas in that case perhaps cut against each other or, or seem to, but obviously there were many different readings of democracy, representative democracy and what it might mean. Similarly with COVID now, there are some real tensions and challenges in trying to bring forward the expertise of epidemiologists with a sense of democracy, with a sense of the freedoms that people should be able to exert uh, in order to live their lives and trying to, to work out um, the tensions and carve the right kind of path there is understandably a really very difficult thing and is difficult in all countries across the world. Uh, so trying to understand those aspects of leadership and the kinds of tensions and complexities involved in decisions that pull at them differently um, is, is one of those ways to look through these lenses. And then it's also the case that some of these uh, six that I've, that I've described are characteristics of leaders that we might find appealing. Uh, charisma certainly is something which uh, comes up as, as an appeal that makes some leaders jump off the page and really uh, come into public life with quite, quite a lot of power. Uh, it's, it's often the case, in fact, um, in recent times, that those who are celebrities already, those who are successful in acting, um, are able to propel themselves into the limelight as political leaders, for example. So charisma is important. Charisma shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, charisma can be easily manipulated. And, uh, and empathy, as another uh, very attractive characteristic, is one that we need to keep in mind as well. And I suppose I would say that uh, those who are charismatic uh, should have an empathetic core. We should see within that person something that has greater substance and that demonstrates their ability to reach across uh, lines of difference or at least to try to understand others. Uh, otherwise, their charisma uh, may be something that can tell us stories that actually draw us further apart rather than um, pulling us together in one way or another. And so I guess uh, as a final closing thought, um, as uh, we discussed with Plato, there's a sense in which leadership is something which can require skill, can require training, can require thinking. I hope that uh, this series will be something like uh, learning more about sailing, uh, where we get a better sense uh, of the ways in which the winds and the waves work. We get a better sense in which these are troubled times and what exactly is difficult about these times. Yeah, we also come to understand better the different sails, the different ropes, the different navigational equipment. That can help us to navigate really deep, dark, and uncharted waters uh, that we don't know very well. And, uh, and I do hope that across the rest of this series, you will get more of those sorts of tools, a greater understanding and great, greater ways of debating how we can uh, hold to account our leaders, become leaders ourselves, uh, or discuss leadership in troubled times. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.